0: Good morning, everyone. Good morning. We're going to go ahead and begin class of prayer this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come and study. We invite you and your presence and your angels with us this morning, that our minds will be enlightened, and may our hearts overflow with love for you and each other. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. We are doing lesson number nine in our quarterly, Redemption in Romans. And the title for the lesson this week is, Freedom in Christ. The memory verse says, there is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. And the first question I thought I'd throw out at you guys is, what does it mean to be in Christ? She said, living as He lived. Other thoughts? Dying to self. Dying to self. Well, keep that in mind. What does it mean to be in Christ as we go through the lesson today? And if you look at the second paragraph, it begins... Um, Paul was saying in Romans 7 that if you refuse to accept Jesus Christ, the wretched experience of Romans 7 will be yours. You will be slaves to sin, unable to do what you choose to do. In Romans 8, he says that Christ Jesus offers you deliverance from sin and the freedom to do good that you want to do, but your flesh won't allow. Any thoughts about that? You notice it says Christ offers you deliverance from sin. Deliverance from sin. How? The Holy Spirit, she says. When do we get deliverance from sin, I guess, is the question. Sin, separation from God, and connects to God, even though perfect. Sin results in separation from God. Yeah? So when do we get this deliverance from sin? Do we get it now? Yes, when yes. we accept Him. She said yes. When we accept His rule in our life rather than sin's rule in our life. She says when we accept His rule in our life rather than sin's rule in our life. Have you ever heard sin broken up into component parts? No? Like we get, we get delivered, deliverance from the penalty of sin. We get deliverance from the power of sin. We get deliverance from the presence of sin. Have you ever heard it broken up like that? Yeah, yes. Can, can Christ hang around with sinners, but God can't? He said, can Christ hang around with sinners, but God can't? Any? I read the New text, I read, now the who are in God Father as well. Okay. Oh, for those who are in God the Father. What do you all think? Is that, a, is that an abuse of the passage? Or if we're in Christ Jesus, we're also in the Father. I pray that you would be in me as I am in, you know... <laughs> It was to say John 17. I pray, Father, they will be in me as I am in you, all of us in each other. In John 17. Yeah. Can we be de- delivered from sin's penalty without being delivered from sin's power or presence? Can we be delivered from sin's penalty without being delivered from sin's power or presence? So then, how does Christ deliver us from sin's penalty? Isn't it by simply delivering us from sin? Do you notice how oftentimes some of the theories put forth that Christ was delivering us from the penalty of sin rather than simply delivering us from sin? What's it say? We shall call his name Emmanuel, for he shall save his people from the penalty of sin. No from sin from their sin yeah he's coming to actually deliver us from sin to remove sin from us do we think about it that way does it mean something different to think about being delivered from sin's penalty versus being delivered from sin having sin removed from us if we're delivered from sin it's automatic that we will not be she says if we're delivered from sin, it's automatic that we won't receive sin's penalty. So, can we experience deliverance from sin now? Anybody want to suggest how that how that happens? How we can participate in that now? Any steps, any specific requirements, any anything at all that we need to know about that process? Yes. As you discover the 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 basic true unselfish love relationship that God wants to have you, do all want to do anything to weakness and versus trying to stand at the door and bark. She said as we come to understand the truth about God and his his methods, a character of love, that it, it draws us to him rather than us trying to, to fight our way out of it. Is that is that kind of a nutshell what you said? Yes. Well, here's a passage out of Ministry of Healing. See if this has any bearing on the question of how we can experience deliverance from sin now. It's page 425, Ministry of Healing. It says, The knowledge of God, as revealed in Christ, is the knowledge that all who are saved must have. It is the knowledge that works transformation of character. This knowledge, received, will recreate the soul in the image of God. It will impart to the whole being a spiritual power that is divine. What is she suggesting here is God's mechanism or means through which He delivers us. Did you hear mechanism or means suggested? The knowledge of God imparted to the soul. As revealed in... Christ. Does this have any bearing on how we understand Scripture? Do we look through Scripture and what God has done through the lens of Jesus Christ? Do we require that all our doctrines fit with what Jesus revealed? We talk about his Adventist revelation frequently that remnant people have two qualities. What are the two qualities we often often cite? Camments of God and hold to... Jesus. The testimony of Jesus, right? Isn't that what the scripture says? So we often cite both of those, and we, we of course, cite the evidence of the testimony of Jesus is? Oh, yes, yeah, red leather books. It's having in our collection the writings of a dead prophet. Wait a minute, what is this? What is this? This is writings of dead prophets, isn't it? Is that quality of revelation uh, talking about that in order to be that remnant people, we hold to the commandments and have writings of dead prophets? Or is it that we hold to the testimony of Jesus? We hold to the testimony. What was the testimony that Jesus gave? If you've seen me, you've seen the father. the father. The Father and I are one. What does it say life eternal is in John seventeen three. To, to know God and Jesus Christ are now assent. So not only is it that we hold to the commandments, we hold to the testimony that Jesus gave. And the testimony that Jesus, Jesus gave was about his father. Paul continues explaining that this freedom was purchased at infinite cost. Christ the Son of God took on humanity the only way he could relate to us, could be our perfect example, and could become the substitute who died in our stead. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh. As a result, the righteous requirements of the law can be fulfilled in us. In other words, Christ made victory over sin, as well as meeting the positive requirements of the law, possible. Anybody want to comment on that paragraph? I thought it had a lot of a lot of stuff for us to talk about in that one paragraph. It's but quite understood. I like the way you said that. So, is it true? that it cost God, all three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all three, infinitely to save mankind. Is that true? Yes. Can that truth, it cost God infinitely to save us and eliminate sin from the universe, can that truth be misconstrued? Yes. Now, isn't it similar to say, it cost God infinitely, and God paid an infinite price. Aren't those two things similar? Yes. I think they are. Yeah. Is that the same as saying, God paid our legal penalty. No. D- does this other comment, "God paid our legal penalty," introduce a new element and a new, an undercurrent to the to what was transpiring? No. Hmm. So it says in the lesson that he took our humanity. Quote: the only way he could relate to us. Unquote. What does that mean? He took our humanity the only way He could relate to us. Oh, I like what you said. The only way we could see Him. How about this? Hebrews two seventeen and 18. For this reason, He had to be made like His brothers in every way, in order that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, and that He might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because He Himself suffered when He was tempted, He is able to help those who are being tempted. Have you ever heard that before? Hebrews 2, 17 and 18. What does it mean? We can identify with him. You know, he's one of us. He's one of us, so we can identify with him. Have you ever heard it suggested that because he suffered, because he himself suffered, when he was tempted, he is able to help those that are being tempted? That's a quote from Scripture. That that means that he now can empathize with us. He now knows how difficult it is for us. That in heaven we have a friend in court. You ever heard that? We have a friend in court. One who knows our pains and knows our struggles. Who can inform the Father about how difficult it is for us down here and how much pain and suffering we go through. And communicates our struggles to the Father to procure mercy and and grace in the time of need. Have you ever heard that? Yes. Does it disgust you? No, it <laughs> well, think, think of the implications. Are we suggesting that Christ became human in order to gain knowledge, insight, wisdom, understanding, compassion, grace, goodness that the Godhead did not previously possess? In in his humanity, didn't he have to learn those things? Oh, wait, see, with this different thing, we're talking about God right now. Is Christ informing the Father of something the Father didn't know? Did, Did Christ do this to gain some knowledge, some experience, some, as God? Uh, some some compassion, some mercy, because it's often presented that Christ, who has went through what we've gone through, now has insight into our condition, now has wisdom, now has a, a compassion for us, now has an understanding, and he's in heaven as our faithful high priest, communicating to the Father what it's like for us poor sinners down here. I would suggest to you that is a gross distortion of the heavenly character. He has compassion for Lucifer. Because what does the scripture say? For God so loved the world that... He gave His Son. God was in the Son, reconciling the world to Himself. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His Son, but gave Him up. How will He not along with Him give us all things? It is God who justifies. Who is it that condemns? Christ Jesus? He is at the right hand of the Father. And is also, also, what's that word mean? In addition to, interceding for us. I saw a hand right here in the middle. A hand? A hand. Do you, you think he did? Yes. Yes. So you think that God somehow was limited in His knowledge? He wasn't actually omniscient. I'm not God knows all, but I the of, blood, the of blood. and that's what we need. Okay. So we need it. So God, God didn't need to learn it. Okay. Yes. Okay. I'm I'm with you now. I was talking about though this presentation and representation that God did this to benefit God in some way. I I, I call that into question. Well, let's see what uh, what Ellen White suggests in Desire of Ages, page twenty three. She says this: Christ was about to visit our world and to become incarnate. He says, "A body thou hast prepared for me." Had He appeared with the glory that His that was His with the Father before the world was, we could not have endured the light of His presence. That we might behold it and not be destroyed. The manifestation of His glory was shrouded. His divinity was veiled with humanity. The invisible glory in the visible. Human form. Question. Why would we have been destroyed had Christ come with the glory that he had with the Father before his incarnation? Because of our our condition? Or if Christ hadn't taken on humanity, would he have come angry, harsh, wrathful, punitive, seeking to destroy? Would his character have been somehow hostile toward us? Wait a minute then. Does this give us insight into why the wicked die in the end when God comes unveiled? Mm -hmm. Then why do some suggest that God's anger and wrath is somehow you know, put against people and God inflicts this torment and torture upon people? If Christ, in his love and grace, his desire to seek and to save, could not come in his unveiled glory without destroying us, does that give us a clue as to why the wicked who are unhealed, unrenewed, unregenerate will die? Hmm. What are the reasons did he become incarnate? Desire of Ages, page 23, paragraph 3. He pitched his tent by the side of the tents of men that he might dwell among us and make us familiar with his divine character in life. So who was it to educate? Was this experience to educate the Godhead about something that they did not yet understand, comprehend, appreciate, or know? Of course it was not. That diminishes God when we present those things. Desire of Ages, page 24. Since Jesus came to dwell with us, we know that God, we know that God is acquainted with our trials and sympathizes with our griefs. Every son and daughter of Adam may understand that our Creator is the friend of sinners. For in every doctrine of grace, every promise of joy, every deed of love, every divine attraction presented in the Savior's life on earth, we see God with us. So whose benefit was this for? I want to make this very, very clear. Christ became one with us to become a merciful and faithful high priest for our need not to educate the Godhead on something they didn't know. Would we all agree? Yes. Was God's character called into question? Mm-hmm. This passage I just read said that, uh, that he did this so that we might become acquainted with the divine character. Was that part of the problem? Besides this this purpose of revealing to us God, revealing to us the truth about the divine character, convincing us that God is, is our friend and not our enemy, was there any other purposes in why Christ became incarnate? Or is it only revelatory? He couldn't have died if he wasn't human. She says he couldn't have died if he wasn't human. That's true. Could he have been tempted if he wasn't human? No. No. It says in James chapter 1, no one should say God tempts because God doesn't tempt anyone. God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. God divinity can't be tempted. Was Jesus tempted? Yes. So that was his humanity being tempted. So did he come for the purpose of experiencing temptation as a human? Was there some aspect of our salvation that required him to do that? Well, the lesson suggests right here, as we ask this question, in that paragraph it says, He became the substitute and died in our stead. That's what it says. He became a substitute and died in our stead. And we read in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, it says, He had to be made like his brothers in every way, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Substitute, atonement. What does this mean? Did he have to become one of us to make atonement? Yes. Yes. Yes, yes he did. What does atonement mean? At yes, very well, very well. At one minute. Did sin cause a breakdown in the unity between man and God? Yes. When Adam sinned, did God in any fashion, form, or shape get changed in any way? No. Did did mankind somehow get changed? Yes. We're doing Romans this quarter. Does it say that the, the carnal mind is what toward God? Enmity. En- 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 What's enmity mean? Enemies. Enemies. En- 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 we're against them. Our natural minds at sin. We are against God in heart, in mind, and attitude, and character. Our natural state is against God. Yes. Um, If Adam and Eve had to have sinned, would Jesus still have to come and die for Satan? Because Satan was in rebellion before Adam and Eve ever sinned. He asked the question, if Adam and Eve would not have sinned, would Christ have to have died for Satan? It's a great question that really thrusts a, a, a deadly sword through the heart of the penal substitution model, if you value in Ellen White's writings. Because Ellen White says that again and again, Lucifer was offered pardon on the condition of repentance and submission in heaven. No blood atonement, no payment, no death of anyone. Again and again, and he would have been reinstated into his position on the condition of repentance and submission without Christ dying. So the answer to the question is, if you value all in White's writing, no, Christ would not have had to die for Lucifer if he would have been willing to repent and submit. So the question then remains, then why did we... Why does Christ have to die for us? And let's just clear this up right now before we go into the whole discussion. Do we believe in this class that mankind could be saved without the death of Christ? No. No. It was essential. We could not be saved without the death of Christ. It was absolutely a requirement. The question is why? Now we explain it a little differently than the traditional penal substitution model. Penal substitution model explains it how. Why does Christ have to die? Payment. The law required it. You will find as we go through the evidence of scripture today and and inspiration that the law never required such a thing. The law required something else. So keep that in mind as we go through. So Hebrews says atonement. Atonement is reconciliation. Who got changed? God or man? So who did Christ, in order to reconcile man, man back to God, who had to be fixed or changed? Man. So did Christ come simply, let's put it very simply, did Christ come to do whatever was necessary to put man back right with God? Yes. Yes. Now traditional models have, well, what was the obstacle? And I could show you document after document. The traditional models have the obstacle between man and God, once man sinned, was God's righteous wrath. And Christ came to die to take the wrath out of the way so that we can be again right with God. Do you see where the problem has been shifted? It's no longer the sinful, heart, twisted, selfish character of mankind. We're not the problem. We're not out of harmony anymore. We're not what needing to be put right anymore with God. The problem is God's anger and wrath, now that we have sinned against him and broken his law, has to be expiated in some way. Something he has to take care of it. So Christ is dying now to fix God in some way. We've shifted the focus. And this is traditional. This, and where does this whole idea come from? If you look in the history of the Christian church, it comes out of Rome. It's pagan. We do something to appease God so that God will change and be gracious and merciful to us. Now, we can't work our way into heaven so we have a champion that does our work for us and pays the price for us so that we can have our payment made, we can have the God appeased because there's nothing we could bring to Him. If you really break it down and think about the grossness of this, here we are in sin. We're out of harmony with God. What can we do to get back into God's good graces? I know, I'll suggest this to you all. When God sends His Son... In love for us, for God who so love the world, he sent his son. The one thing we can do to be back in God's good graces is we can murder his son and offer him his son's blood. And then God will be happy with us. Does that, like, have a problem with anybody? Christ in his own Yeah, and that's exactly what penal substitution is. Right. I saw a hand. So is it so simple as the fact that you may have daily fellowship with the God the first of all Sure. From that point in time, though, we went away from that daily physical mis- 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 <laughs> fellowship. And so we totally lost being born in sin. He didn't know what it was to walk with God, and then by Christ coming and living and walking among us, we were able to see what God would be like in motion and love and example, so that it would bring us back into that balance of what it would be to walk with the Father. I like it. I like where you're going. There's, there's, there's good spirit of prophecy and scripture evidence for that. Colossians one uh, tells us that all things in heaven and in earth are reconciled to Christ at the cross. Well, heavenly things did not sin. They had no carnal nature. They didn't need. Um, they didn't need something done within them to fix a carnal nature but they had questions there was doubt about god's character lucifer had raised questions that need to be answered and so christ's revelation of truth answered those questions and this is what christ meant when he said um, now um now the time of judgment of this world now the prince of this world should be cast down and i when i am lifted up will draw all unto me he's talking about all it's not all men it doesn't say men in the greek all the universe to me how because at that time, when Christ was crucified, all the allegations of Satan, Satan's character was laid wide open before the angelic host. And Christ's character and God's character was, was clearly vindicated before the angelic host. And so after that point in time, Satan's movements were restricted to earth. Restricted by what? God put a force shield around earth and wouldn't let Satan leave? No. Restricted because all intelligence in the universe said, I'm not listening to you anymore. Talk to the hand. I'm not listening. All my questions are settled. No one would listen to him except here on earth. But uh, the question about man and Lucifer in a different position. Why could Lucifer? Ellen White says in the of Ages, page 762. But even as a sinner, man was in a different position, uh, d- different position than that of Lucifer. Lucifer sinned in the light of God's glory. To him as to no other created being was given a manifestation of, of the character of God. Lucifer chose, to, f- chose to, to follow his own selfish, independent will. This choice was final. But man was deceived by Satan's sophistry, the height and the depth of the love of God he did not know. There was hope for him. And what do you think she says there's hope for us in? In a payment to appease the anger and wrath of the Father? No. No, she says there's hope for him in a revelation of the character of God. That we may be drawn back to him. That's what she says. It's our 7.62. Anyway. But we're still asking the question. Because I believe that revelation of truth is the first step to destroy lies to win us back to trust. No question about it. But did Christ have to do more than reveal truth? That's the question we're trying to, to answer. Well, we're talking about what is the problem that sin caused. Sin caused an actual change in humanity. Did it not? was Adam changed all the way down to the fibers of his being. Yes, Yes, and it says in Psalms 51, we are born in sin, conceived in iniquity. We are wired for for what? For loving others? We are wired for self-centeredness. And what is the root of sin? self Selfishness the opposite of the principle of God's government. God's government is based on? Selflessness. Love, other-centeredness, beneficent. You know, Satan's government is based on? Selfishness, or what we call in the world today, survival of the fittest. Watch out for me, number one. That's the, that we're wired for it. We are all wired for this. This is why we are born in sin, conceived in iniquity. This is why we have to be reborn. We need a new heart and right spirit. So listen to what, and so my suggestion is that Christ had to come to actually procure, achieve something. That would fix our condition. He had to fix what was broken in mankind. Listen to what Ellen White says in Bible Commentary 1074. The atonement of Christ is not a mere skillful way to have our sins pardoned. It is a divine remedy for the cure of transgression and the restoration of spiritual health. It is the heaven-ordained means by which the righteousness of Christ may not only be upon us, but in our hearts and characters. Does that sound restorative, regenerative, recreative? Christ somehow in his personhood had to do something to put God's character back in the human species. Any thoughts on that? Anybody want to suggest how that might have happened? Was it necessary? Was it necessary that selfishness be eradicated out of the human heart and God's law be written? And what's the new covenant in Hebrews 8.10? I'll write my law in your hearts and minds. What is the law? The law of love. Yeah, the law of love. All the law of the prophets rest on this. This is God's character. This is the principle upon which life is designed to operate upon. So Christ, being that unique person in universal history the two antagonistic powers met in the human brain of Jesus Christ. We've already established divinity couldn't be tempted. Christ was born of a woman under law, Galatians 4.4, 4, but his father was God. Holy Spirit. You see, he's unique. He doesn't have a sinful parents. He also wasn't created de novo like Adam and Eve. His humanity was unique in a blend of the divine and our condition, which enabled him, as it says in Hebrews 4.15, to be tempted in every way just like we are yet without sin. And it says in James 1 that we're tempted when we're drug away and enticed by our own evil desires. Are both of those scriptures true? Does that mean Christ's humanity was capable of experiencing temptation from an internal emotional pull? Gethsemane. Look at the evidence. In Gethsemane, did Christ experience emotional anguish? And did the emotional anguish tempt him to take a certain course of action? Okay. Which course of action would he have taken if he went with his emotions? Save, save, self. Save, save self, selfishness. He was tempted just like we are in every way. Yet every time temptation came, what did Christ do? Be okay. Mm-hmm. Through what? Through the power of the Holy Spirit. Right. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, he chose what course of action? The course of self sacrificial love, right? Mm-hmm. He said, No one can take my life. I will. Lay it down down or I will give it freely. This is God's kingdom of love. And so Jesus Christ, through his human brain, as he's being tempted, because divinity can't be tempted, is exercising his human brain to rewrite in humanity God's perfect character of love. What evidence do we have for that? I'm going to jump ahead a little bit. This is um, out of Hebrews 5, 8, and 9. Although he was a son, he learned obedience. From what he suffered and once made perfect, he became the source of salvation for all who obey him. And then Desire of Ages, page 762. This is what the law requires. Remember a minute ago I suggested the law doesn't require legal payment? This is what it requires. The law requires righteousness. A righteous life. A perfect character. And this man has not to give. He cannot meet the claims of God's holy law. But Christ, coming to earth as a man, lived a holy life and developed a perfect character. These he offers as a free gift to all who will receive them. His life stands for the life of men. Thus they have remissions of sins that are passed through... What do you think it's through? Through the legal penalty paid in our behalf. No. Thus they have remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. More than this... Christ imbues man with the attributes of God. He builds up the human character after the similitude of the divine character, a goodly fabric of spiritual strength and beauty. Thus the very righteousness of the law is fulfilled in the believer in Christ and God can be just and the justifier of him which believes in Jesus. What do you all think? Do you see what an incredible God that we serve? Do you see how simple the plan of salvation is? Yes? So the substitution, rather than the way it's mostly been thought, is not to substitute and take uh, God's wrath upon himself instead of us. The substitution is creating perfection, which we can't do. Actually, I have no problem with him taking God's wrath upon himself, as long as we understand what that means. We take the scripture definition through both Old and New Testament, over and over again, the scripture definition is God's wrath is... Letting go, abandoning, giving up. And we find this very, Paul makes this abundantly clear, especially if you know the Greek. In Hebrew. In in Romans chapter 1, he tells us three times that those who reject the knowledge of God, remember what we read earlier? What is the key to life eternal? What is it that transforms the character? The knowledge of God is revealed in Christ, right? Paul says repeatedly, six times, that they rejected the truth about God, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, therefore God, the wrath of God is being revealed, therefore God gave them up, gave them up, gave them up, and if you look over in Hebrews, excuse me, Romans 4.25, same exact Greek expression, therefore God gave up Christ on the cross for us. So, And you, and you hear Christ's own words. Christ's own words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? me Give me up. He experienced the abandonment, the letting go of the Father. That is the wrath of God. He experienced it. Yes, right here. Yeah. Christ didn't have to die for Lucifer because he sinned in the light of God's glory. Was not God walking with Adam and Eve and communicating with him every day? What was missing there that Lucifer had? And I know the plan of salvation was in effect way before they actually sinned. So he. The the, the evidence from the Spirit of Prophecy is that the, the height and the depth of the love of God they did not know. That they were still new, they had he was walking with them, but they had not had the experience, the depth. We don't know how many eons of time that Lucifer spent as the covering cherub in the in the presence of God, and he knew God better than the angelic host who had been in heaven as well. He had greater intimacies and knowledge of God than than many of the angels that followed him, as he was able to deceive them. And so, um, my my uh, take on that would be: they knew him, but yet they hadn't yet known him well enough to make a uh, to where they made a choice to solidify their loyalty behind him. They actually made a choice to believe the lies about him. When, when the serpent lied, they believed the lies rather than believing the truth. Well, they actually believed the lies, and that's what caused the whole breach of trust. You know, lies believed break the circle of love and trust. And that based on the broken love and trust, that led to the actions of taking the fruit. A
1: third of the angels
0: believe the lies. third of the angels believe the lies. Yeah, yeah. Other questions? Yes. It almost doesn't seem fair that God would have had to come and die for us, but not for Satan. Let's say, let's say we hadn't sinned, but what would have been happened to Satan It'd still be sin in the universe? Because Satan was the originator of sin. Not if Satan would have repented and uh, submitted. Oh, well, no, he didn't. Yes, but see, that's the whole point. See, this is the point. Um, what, what is required? Why did, what, what, what does God do? You say it's not fair. Well, when we use the word fairness, we almost always mean something related to ourself or related to somebody else not getting what we think they deserve. He was That's what we always, always mean. The better question, if you ever hear somebody use, it's not fair, in your mind immediately erase that and ask the question, what's right? right. right. God does what's right. That's righteous. Same thing as what's just. And what's the right thing for a God of love to do when his creatures are in a terminal condition of sinfulness? Save them. them. What's the right thing for a loving father to do when a child has put themselves in harm's way? Save them. Save them. That's the right thing to do. God does what's right. And so it it may not be fair, but it sure is right. (laughs) 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 Yes? I... uh... Wondered about God's wrath as being his anger towards the sin condition what it does to his people that he loves Oh there's there are wrath like that Oh yeah he absolutely hates sin in the same way a doctor hates meningitis that's killing his child sure to see what sin is doing it it leads to death Yes doctors and, and, and parents hate disease that they're killing their, their children but do you ever hate the child who's dying so isn't that righteous indignation? I mean, that- so, so let's talk about that. If you have a child who is dying, and maybe, maybe this child, maybe you're, let's say you're working down in Atlanta at the CDC, and you're a physician working with various strains of infectious diseases at the CDC in Atlanta, Centers for Disease Control. And for, for whatever reason, you take your young child into the office with you, and you're working on some, uh, some various deadly strains of Ebola virus. <laughs> And uh, you tell your young child, uh, do not touch anything in this lab. You might even, to really get the point across, say, in the day that you touch anything in this lab, you will surely die. Mm -hmm. And your child disobeys and touches and gets infected with this virus. Let's say that because of your research, you have a remedy that will cure this child. If the child fights against you and, and runs and, and, and hides and, and won't let you near this child and, and as you try to apply this remedy, every attempt to apply the remedy is met with hostility and, and resistance and, and rejection and refusal. And, and it's a medicine like polio vaccine. It has to be given orally. It can't be injected. And, and and if you're trying to give this, they spit it out and they won't swallow and, and so forth and so on. Um, do you hate your child? No. if they refuse the remedy and the disease takes hold and begins to devastate them do you, in order to be just need to get out a belt and begin to beat them? No. <laughs> nice one he said you give him a little verset and just knock him out and then, and then give it to him okay? all analogies have limits the limits here are what, what is it that God wants? what is the problem? see we're, the analogy I gave is a physical one and we can force a physical healing on someone we could. But what God wants, we could still force a physical healing on someone. What God wants, He wants us to observe the Sabbath, right? Well, yes, He does. But what does it say in Isaiah? That we call the Sabbath a delight. See, he can use power to force observance of Sabbath. Can he use power to force us to delight in it? No, no. He wants us to be givers. But the Lord loves a. Cheerful. Can he force us to be cheerful givers? No. Okay? What he wants cannot be achieved by forcing it upon us. He wants a healing of character, a healing of heart, a healing of mind. This cannot be exercised by force. So Zechariah 4, 6, not by might nor by power, but by the way the Spirit works. So while the, the verse said may work on a physical illness, God cannot get what He wants by forcing it. Only by freely cooperating with Him can we experience a change of heart where we love what He loves and we delight in what He delights in. Yes? About that analogy as Dr Dad, why would you leave your child in that spot in the first place? yeah, well, again, analogies have limitations, and so the question is why did God put the tree of knowledge of good and evil in the garden? many people ask this question, okay. and some people will read questions like uh quotes from Ellen white he he tested them as God was tempting them. no, he wasn't no no, 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 you ever heard the uh, the statement of testing your metal, okay, yeah. What what he put it there for was was primarily two reasons. The controversy was already going on in the universe, and he put it there as a protection. Lucifer could only approach them at the tree. The rest of the garden, they weren't going to be harassed. He wasn't going to follow them 24 hours a day and stay on their case, like he does you and me. So they only could be approached at the tree, so one. And two, though, for their character development. The makes it very clear that without coming to a a position where they weighed the issues and made a decision with their free will, there is no development of character. And so they had at some point in their development to weigh the issues, come to their own conclusion, and choose. And it was such an easy choice for them. They had no carnal nature. They had nothing internal to tempt them. They couldn't be harassed everywhere. They had the power in their original creation to exercise the will that God gave them to develop a perfect character. We don't have that power. Christ came to do that, which we cannot do for ourselves. And this he offers as a free gift. For all who will accept it, as we read earlier. Yes. If you don't have a choice, there's no free will. That's right. Yes, we we don't have a choice to cure ourselves is what I meant, but we do have a choice to accept what Christ has done for us. I'm mean, Yeah. Right. That's right. Choice. There's no free will. Excellent. That's right. And if there's no free will, there's no <clears throat> no love. There's no free. If there's no freedom, there's no love. See, we could be robots. God could program us. We could be puppets but we couldn't love in a condition like that. God is love. He won't do that. He won't take free will. That's why Christ is called the second Adam. Yes. Yes. He, he achieved in Christ's humanity at much greater disadvantage than the first Adam because Christ took upon himself our real conditions. we already went through. He achieved in his human brain what God designed mankind to be. It was achieved in the person of Jesus Christ. This was not a claim. This was not some payment. This was an achievement. Yes. Yes. This on the other hand, yes. Um, didn't, didn't Christ come to prove that, that we could live a sinless life? And it could be done. I mean, He demonstrated that it could be done. And won't there be a group of people who do that? There are a group of people who experience the Holy Spirit's regenerating power in their life to have new hearts, right spirits, and and, and new characters. But there's not a group of people who would do what Jesus Christ did. Well, not that. But I mean, he walked the wine, tread the wine press alone. At the cross, as I understand it, he really experienced abandonment at that moment by his father. Up to that point through his life, there was a daily communion with the father. He went out, led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness, where with, through the power of the spirit, his human brain took upon took on the, the, the temptations of the devil and defeated them. But at the cross, Gethsemane and the cross, there was a breaking up of that unity. And he... Now get, get your mind around this, guys. For those hours... He was fighting it alone with a broken unity with His Father. We will never be in that position. He will never leave us nor forsake us. We will always be empowered with His presence and His Spirit. We, praise God, will never have to go through what Christ went through. And He achieved victory in that abandoned condition. Yeah, it's powerful stuff. All right, Let's move on to fastly through Sunday's lesson. Okay? (laughs) Moving quickly this week, Romans 8, 1 and 2, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Jesus Christ Jesus, the law of spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. And it, uh, the top section asks in the lesson, what does no condemnation mean? I think that's a great question, so let's answer it. What does no condemnation mean? First question before we can answer that, from where does condemnation of sinners arise? From okay, Satan certainly does accuse us. He is the accuser of the brethren. No question about it. it comes from within. How oh, she says it comes from within. Because if we did not, if we did not know of sin, we wouldn't see ourselves as sinners, and that's why we have. To call. So condemnation or conviction. of Adam, as soon as he sinned, ran and hid because he was afraid. God comes and says, hey, what, what, who told you you're naked? I didn't say anything to you about it. Where's that coming from? Your own conscience condemning and convicting you. So you're suggesting that sin brings a, a guilt and a condemnation internal to the sinner. Here's Jesus in Matthew 12, 36 and 37. But I tell you that men will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. condemned. Hmm. Where is condemnation arising, according to Jesus? Condemned. And remember what he said, From the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. The good man brings forth good out of the good stored up in him, and the evil man brings forth evil out of the evil stored up in him. So this word would be an expression, or a revelation, or an evidence of what's in the heart. So is Jesus suggesting condemnation comes from the actual condition of the person? Either being, well, let's go to the next one. John chapter 12, verse 47 and 48. As for the person who hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge him. This is Jesus speaking because many the penal model loves to have God sitting up there in his judgment seat pronouncing judgments upon people. They love that. And then they say, but no, uh, God won't be our judge. Jesus will be our judge. Wait, Jesus said, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save it. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. That very word which I spoke will condemn him at the last day. What is he saying? What does it mean? Is he saying that I will have to sit in judgment and weigh out the evidences and decipher through all the issues and come to a conclusion and decide whether you get condemned or not? Or is he saying... The very word that I spoke, the truth itself, will condemn. The reality of your condition. You have either accepted me, opened your heart, experienced the presence of my spirit, regeneration, renewal, you have been moved from enmity with me, which was your carnal state, and have been renewed in heart and mind, so we are now reconciled and friends, or not. You you remain as my enemy. You remain selfish. Egocentric, hostile to the ways of the Lord, or you've been renewed and you're now my friend. I mean, isn't it going to be self evident? Hmm. How about this one? John 5 24. I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. This is powerful. Think it through. What does it mean? What's our starting position? We're in a terminal condition. Our starting position is terminal. If God does nothing, what happens to us? We die. We are in a state of death. That's our starting position. I mean, think it through. If we're already in this terminal condition, our starting position is a position of death, does God have to take action to kill us? No, No, he has to take action to stop us from dying. That's the whole point. Satan has got it turned so 180 degrees backwards that much of Christianity teaches that God, in order to be just, has to take action to inflict death. And the source of life, the creator, the regenerator, the savior of all, becomes the source of pain, suffering, and death. This is Satan's lies. No, we cross over from death to life. And there will be no condemnation. Why? Because we believe. What's another word for believe? Trust. Trust. Have faith. Confidence. Open the heart. And the Holy Spirit comes in and changes, heals, transforms. Thus we cross from a position of condemnation, because we're at enmity, we're selfish, to a position of salvation. So what is it that prevents condemnation? What prevents us being condemned? Being According to what I just read in, in that passage. Trust. 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 Belief in Christ, or trust, or faith, yes. When we trust Him, faith, we have a heart open to Him. He, he comes in, it prevents our condemnation. The lesson describes a person who is in sin and wretchedness who surrenders to Christ, and in the third paragraph on Sunday's lesson says these words, but then the person surrenders to Jesus and immediate change is wrought in his or her standing with God. Formerly condemned as a lawbreaker, that person now stands perfect in the sight of God, stands as if he or she never sinned because the righteousness of Jesus Christ completely covers that person. There is no more condemnation. Not because the person is faultless, sinless, or worthy of eternal life, he or she is not. But because Jesus' perfect life record stands in the person's stead, thus there is no condemnation. (laughs) Do you know what this, if this were true, what it makes God out to be? A liar and a fraud. You hear what this said? We are not. It says right there. Not because we are faultless, sinless, worthless, of No, he or she is not. We are not sinless, faultless. But God says we are. It's distorted. It's wrong. And this is why, I'm going to tell you, my, my personal conviction at this time in human history, what Christ is waiting for. We find ourselves waiting at this time in history for the gospel of the kingdom to be preached to the entire world as a witness to all nations and then the end will come. You understand Christianity has been preaching penal substitution atonement for 500 years all over the world. Christ has not come. Why? Because it makes God into a liar and a fraud. But Tim, there is that moment of recognition of truth and wanting to be connected to Christ like the thief on the cross where you come to that realization that you want that, but you haven't been changed yet, but the desire has been changed. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Mm-hmm. Has the been on the cross he oh, well is it's the desire a desire to be changed, to love God to be like him here, but it's... did he make a choice? Yes, he made a choice. What choice did he make? To to oh be God. To go. God. To accept Jesus. He liked what he saw in the Did he surrender self to Christ? Did he do that? Now, what is the higher hurdle? We talked about this before. Remember, according to the scriptures, our natural state of heart is distrust, enmity, selfishness, opposition to God, and uh, enmity to God. That's our natural state. Right. Did the thief on the cross come to a point? Not just recognition. No, but desire. It says in Desire of Ages that many of the high priests, many of the high priests and many of the priestly leaders came to the recognition. And they were convicted even that Christ was all he said he was. They didn't want to be like him. Right. But they didn't make the choice to surrender self. When the thief made the choice to say yes to Christ, did he experience a change in his internal compass? Did something transpire within him that he has what the scripture says in uh, Ezekiel chapter thirty six, twenty six, I will remove the stony heart. And put in a heart of flesh. Did he get a new heart and a right spirit, as it says in Psalm 51? So back to our, our quotation, it says here, when a person surrenders to Jesus, an immediate change is wrought in his, her, her, standing with God. I suggest, an immediate change is wrought in the heart of the believer. That's where change happens. Here. It isn't the acts that follow. It isn't the good or bad need. No. Later, it's that decision to come to Christ. Or do we have the other thing going on that as soon as we send her to Christ, that Christ begins putting heavenly wool over the Father's eyes? So the Father can't see us anymore. You know, the heavenly radar jammer. Well, it says in... For those of you who really think I'm being a little bit too tongue-in-cheek here, Christ Object Lessons, you can look this up, it's page 411. She talks about the robe woven in the loom of heaven without one thread of human devising. And she goes on to say that when the heart is united with his heart, the will is brought into union with his will. We think his thoughts. We live his life. This is what it means to be covered with the robe of his righteousness. Christ Object Lessons 4.11. It might be 3.11. Paul I was going to say is that in some ways, it is, more, it is only possible for the thief to accept Christ by a full heart change because he's sitting on a cross about to die. All the crowd around the the cross is there is mocking and jeering Jesus. Everybody is doubting him, and he's the only one in the entire well, there's some other people, but you know, to to genuinely accept Christ in that moment is a pure miracle because everything point is the opposite as far as what his eyes saw. That's good. I, I agree. Yeah, he looked like a condemned Just as bad as them is what he looked like as far as the external. That's right. And so I would suggest that this is where change happens. God is working to change us. Christ won the victory for us in his humanity. The human species was put right with God in the person of Jesus Christ. We don't have to do that work. What we do now is we simply trust Him and receive all that He's worked out for us through the working of the Holy Spirit, takes all that Christ has achieved and makes it known to us, rewrites it in our heart, the law, uh, I'll put my law in your hearts and minds, all this kind of stuff, just when we trust Him. Well, that's why I heard when we rent, because everything was revealed about God. and we could yes, it was all the way to God was again open. Let's let me read out to you Second Corinthians five seventeen through twenty. This idea of what it means, of what this means, where this change is taking place, what is God working to change—a record book in heaven, uh, uh, the way He sees us in some ways, He looks at us differently, even though we're not changed. Second Corinthians five seventeen through twenty. Anyone who is joined to Christ is a new being. The old is gone. The new has come. And this is done by God, who through Christ changed us from enemies into his friends. And gave us the task of making others his friends also. Our message is that God was in Christ making the whole human race his friends. God did not keep an account of their sins. And he has given us the message which tells how he makes them his friends. Here we are then, speaking for Christ as though God Himself were making His appeal through us. We plead on Christ's behalf. Let God change you from enemies into friends. Is that powerful? What is He wanting to change? We plead on God's behalf. Let God change your records from condemned to pardoned. So wrong in so many ways. I pray that each one of us will let God change us from enemies into friends. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have gone to such lengths, that you have come in person, took upon yourself a terrible circumstance and situation, felt the pain that we feel, tempted beyond anything we could know, experienced the the breaking up of your unity with your Father, suffered and chose to give freely, with the exercise of, your, of the love that you had in your human brain to restore perfectly mankind back into your original design. <clears throat> Lord, we, we surrender our hearts to you. We see you as our Savior and our friend, a perfect representation of God. We ask now that your Spirit will take all that you have achieved, reproduce in us, that our thoughts might come into harmony with yours, our desires in harmony with yours, our heart to be one with yours, that we might live your life showing others what God is truly like, that your name may be glorified at this special time in earth's history, that the world may be lightened now with your character, that we can see you coming soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen.